Thank you, Roger. It's always good to see you again. I see Roger's children and grandchildren all the time. We go to the same church, and one of his uh, grandchildren is part of our worship team. So I'm reminded of Roger all the time. And uh, rumor has it he's moving down our way, so I look forward to seeing him more often. It was a real privilege to speak to the men this weekend. I shared a story with them that I'm going to start with this morning. And uh, I like history, so I'd like you to go back in time with me, just for a couple of minutes, to 1857. And you're with the 1st Cavalry Regiment on the Kansas Prairie. So get the picture, 1857, you're with the cavalry, you're riding a horse, and you're out on the Kansas Prairie. And then you hear this rumble in the background, and the ground starts to shake. There's something coming, and it's going to be a force to be reckoned with. And then you see it. There's a brown strip that goes from horizon to horizon, east to west. It's a big brown strip, and it's getting closer and closer. And you realize this is a buffalo herd. And some of the Kansas buffalo herds back in that time period could stretch for 30 miles. And they're not walking. They're in stampede mode, and they're coming directly toward you. What would you do? Well, Major John Sedgwick, who was from Connecticut, didn't have a clue what to do. They had not covered this in his classes at West Point. What would you do? Uh, there, There weren't boulders to hide behind, trees to climb. You could try to maybe outrun the buffalo, but they're going to outlast your horses. You can't dodge them. 30 miles in length. You can't dodge them. Uh, I've asked this question to little kids when I've told this story before, and some of them said, well, I'd hop up on a buffalo and ride. (laughs) Uh, I don't know about that. (laughs) I don't know if that would work too well. Uh, So Major Sedgwick turned to Captain Sam Sturgis and said, what are we going to do? And Sam Sturgis said, Major... I haven't got time to explain to you what we're going to do. He says, you just let me take over, and I will steer us through this. And here's what he did. As the buffalo came closer and closer and closer, he put the men in a V formation, put the horses and wagons inside the V uh, with some soldiers holding the horses so they wouldn't bolt and run away. And he put the men in a V like this, and he said, I want you all to shoot as fast as you can, your sharps rifles, at a point directly across from the V. We're going to divide the herd. And that's what they did. For 30 minutes, they just kept shooting as fast as they could. And there was a big pile of dead buffalo right in front of them. And the herd divided, and they went rushing by on the right and left, in some cases just a few feet away from the guys who were shooting. So they had to maintain their poise. Uh, And so, when you're facing a charging buffalo herd, it's real important to have some know-how or to have someone there who has some know-how. And Sam Sturgis saved the day. Have you ever felt like you were facing a charging buffalo herd? Has there been a time in, in your life when you faced that kind of experience where you just felt there was no escape? Maybe some of you are going through that now, and maybe you're going through it every day. You know, maybe you're facing an illness. I had a good friend that died from pancreatic cancer last year. 
And it was just an ongoing battle, day after day, hour after hour, minute after minute. He tried to continue to teach at Dallas Seminary, and then we lost him earlier uh, in the summer. But it was a daily battle. I'm, I'm sure he felt every day like there was a herd of buffalo charging at him. I have a lot of friends who uh, are troubled by wandering children, and it's a burden every day. You can see they, there's always this cloud hanging over them. Their children have gone astray. Maybe it's, it's something else, but maybe you feel that way. I know I felt that way on the week of Fe, uh, February 4, 2007. Worst week of my life. Absolutely the worst week of my life. It was uh, Super Bowl Sunday night. Uh, my wife and I were at home. We weren't watching the game. Actually, we were playing Scrabble. Uh, my daughter was away uh, at Texas State and College uh, in San Marcos, and uh, we received a call from my daughter as we were sitting there. Here's my daughter and her fiancé at the time, Tommy. I'm assuming everybody can... Oh, okay. The sound people always do a good job here. Uh, this is my daughter Stephanie and Tommy. And uh, Stephanie said to me, Dad, Dad, I could tell in her voice something was wrong. Tommy's been in an accident. And I said, well, is he okay? Is he at the hospital? She says, no, you don't understand. He's dead. And, uh, whoa. Uh, she's, I said, well, how'd that happen? Uh, she goes, well, he was riding his motorcycle. He was bringing lunch to me. My daughter was working that day. And uh, he never arrived. And uh, I just got a call from his family, and, the, and they said that he was killed. Uh, he, uh, a, a van turned in front of him. He had his helmet on. He was only going 20 miles an hour, and the van turned in front of him at the last second, and he was killed instantly. And that's my anti-motorcycle riding commercial for this morning, by the way. Well, thus began the, uh, the worst week of my life. Uh, we rushed down to San Marcos, brought my daughter home, and uh, it, there was just a lot of weeping and wailing. I remember uh, this was Sunday, and about Wednesday, it suddenly dawned on me as I was sitting there, I said, you know, I don't believe I've eaten anything since Sunday. <laughs> I hadn't eaten anything and hadn't even noticed, really. Um, there was just a lot of weeping and wailing around the home. And I remember our little dog, Ginger, a little dachshund, she started wa wandering around the house like she was blind, running into walls. Uh, and then she would go into convulsions and uh, make these awful noises. And I said, oh no, Stephanie's going to lose Tommy and she's going to lose her dog in the same week. I took the dog to the vet somewhere in there. And the vet uh, did some studies and said, there's nothing wrong physically with your dog. She says, I consulted the dog psychologist. I didn't know there was such a thing. <laughs> and uh, she said, no, your, your dog loves the family. She, she's been with you for a long time, and she is empathizing with you. In her own way, she is expressing, trying to express the sorrow that she sees all around her. And I remember the night we went to the funeral home, and my daughter was going to see Tommy's corpse for the first time. And she went in the room, and she just started yelling at God. And she opened her Bible, and she turned to Psalm 88, which is not one of the more familiar psalms. Uh, it is a pure lament, where the psalmist is just yelling at God. Why? You can read it sometimes, Psalm 88. 
And she was just yelling and screaming at God. God, you don't need him. I do. Why would you take him from me? I couldn't take any more of this. And so about halfway through the psalm, I think, I went outside. And I went around the corner, down a little hallway where no one was, and I started doing something that I've never done before in my life. I started banging my head against a wall, like Dobby, you know, on Harry Potter. You know, he does that, he gets all riled up, and he starts banging his head on the wall. That's what I was doing, trying to give myself a concussion or something. I I just couldn't believe it. The pain, the, the emotional pain was so great that I just had to do something to release it, and I I found myself banging my head against a wall. Well, I will come back to my daughter's story a little bit later. It gets worse before it gets better, but it uh, does have a happy ending. Uh, And before we finish that story up, I would like for us to look this morning at a passage where Israel was facing a charging buffalo herd. And it's a very familiar story. It's not going to be our focus. Uh, We are going to look at it briefly, and then we're going to look at another passage. But it's 1 Samuel chapter 17. You know the story. The Philistines are out there. And they're going to fight the Israelites. Saul is the king of Israel at this time. But the Philistines have a champion. They have a warrior, Goliath of Gath. And he is huge. Uh, depending on what textual tradition you follow, he was either 9-6 or 6-6. Either way, he was a big guy in this culture. He was intimidating, well-armed, had every weapon in the book. Uh, and he was taunting the armies of Israel, challenging them to send out a warrior. You would think that Saul would be the man, but No. He wasn't ready to do that. And we read in 1 Samuel 17:11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. This was a charging buffalo herd for them. And when you're facing that kind of challenge, you need some know-how. You need to have someone at least who knows how to deal with the problem. Enter David. Now David, verse 12. Enter David. David is introduced. Uh, And he comes and he listens to all of this and he is really ticked off. Uh, And he decides that he is going to go out and face the giant. And there's every indication that everybody expected this battle to be fought at close quarters. If you examine Goliath's weapons, uh, this text says he had a javelin. Some feel that that was a scimitar or a curved sword, not a javelin. At any rate, he had a spear and a sword, uh, and weapons that are going to be designed for fairly close uh, quarter fighting. If you try to throw a javelin at somebody from a long distance, he's probably going to be able to dodge it. Um, And so it looks as if we're going to fight in the ring, as it were. Saul attempted to outfit David. Remember, he said, David, I'm going to give you my armor and my weapons. And David couldn't even move in this stuff, but it seems to imply that Saul was expecting this to be a close quarters kind of a fight. Uh, David refers to fighting wild animals at close quarters. And so you're thinking, well, he's going to fight Goliath the same way. Uh, And then Goliath's movements, he comes toward David. And then there's a challenge. He says, come to me. 
That's my best Goliath voice for this morning. Come to me! <laughs> and and, uh, and uh, suggesting that he's expecting David to come up close and they're going to fight with, uh, hand-to-hand with these weapons. But remember the scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark when Indiana Jones is confronted by the black swordsman, the guy that's all dressed in black with the turban and he's swinging his sword around like that. And remember what uh, Harrison Ford does? He kind of looks at him, sizes him up, and then pulls out a gun and shoots him. <laughs> Remember that scene? Uh, same thing with David. Same thing with David. He surprises everybody. He uses cunning. He surprises everybody by using a sling to deck the giant in one swift, deadly second. Uh, and David picked his ammunitions, his ammunition from the stones in the stream, but we have to assume that he he picked out round stones that were pretty similar to the kind that were used in battle. And we've actually found, archaeologists have found sling stones from the ancient site of Lachish in Israel. Uh, if you look at uh, reliefs of the Assyrian army, they always have archers, they have slingers. Uh, so they had uh, slingshot experts. And these, uh, these sling stones are made of uh, flint. And uh, they're about uh, two and a half uh, inches in diameter. So they're a little bit smaller than a baseball, but they weigh close to nine ounces. And that's almost twice as much as a baseball. So think something just a little bit smaller than a baseball that weighs a lot more than that. And Lawrence Steger, who is the director of the Harvard Semitic Museum, he would know this kind of thing. He estimates that you could propel a sling stone between 100 and 150 miles per hour. And remember, this is not a pea shooter. You know, it's, it's not that kind of sling. It's, it's more this kind of a deal. Uh, when Tiger Woods hits a golf ball off the tee with a driver, it's about 125 miles an hour. So you can just imagine that a sling in the hands of the right person uh, can do some real damage. Uh, and uh, we know from Judges chapter 20 that there were 700 left-handed Benjaminites who could sling stones at the smallest target and not miss. So David was apparently pretty adept at this. Uh, and essentially, Goliath thinks he's showing up for a boxing match or at least a gladiatorial conflict within a ring, and David shows up with a machine gun and lets him have it. <laughs> Um, so, you know, we always think of David being at a disadvantage. Actually, uh, he, he's pretty cunning, and, and now he has to execute. Uh, he has to execute very well, and the Lord enabled him to do that. Uh, but it wasn't really David's cunning and his skill, even though he had that, that won this victory. It was his faith. Uh, and more importantly, the God in whom he placed his faith. Uh, even though David was skilled, uh, and he caught Goliath off guard, I think. Uh, he still had to have a steady hand and a steady eye. Uh, and he picked five stones as if he was expecting this. Well, you know, it might take five shots. But he got him on the first one. Um, and so he, his, his aim was accurate. His hand was steady. And the Lord enabled him to perform under pressure. Not everybody can do that. You knew, you've all seen it. Somebody steps to the foul line. Hey, Ron, 
basketball illustration. <laughs> Somebody steps uh, to the foul line late in the game, and sometimes these guys, 85 90% free throw shooters, and the game is on the line, the pressure is on, and they miss it. They miss it. Um, and uh, that happens. But David didn't choke. <laughs> David didn't choke. The Lord was with him. And he knew that God was the key to his victory. He speaks of God often. Uh, during and after this conflict. And I want you to look at just a few of these verses with me. If you go down to chapter 17, verse 34, David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep. Saul's a little hesitant about letting this guy go out and represent the uh, nation. Shepherd boy, you know, I don't know about this. So David's explaining, your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Uh, Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And at this point, it sounds as if David's just bragging about how brave and strong he is. But notice verse 37 is the key. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear. He will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. So David remembers. When David is facing the charging buffalo herd, the big challenge, he remembers. And that's real important. He remembers what God has done for him. He has a personal history with God. He has experienced God. And he remembers that. And that energizes him to face this challenge. He doesn't just look at the challenge in a a vacuum, uh, without a context. He says, no, uh, God has enabled me in the past, and he'll do that again. So David remembers what God has done. And then down in verses 45 through 47, it's apparent that David is not just remembering what God has done, he is very much aware of the fact that God is with him right now. God's presence makes a difference for David. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day, the Lord... See, David knows the Lord is right there with him. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. This is ancient Israelite trash-talking here. (laughs) But he's pretty serious. (laughs) He's pretty serious about this. He's going to do all this stuff. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver This is real important for where we're going next. Notice what David says. So that everyone will know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's and He will give you into our hands. So David remembered what God had done for him in the past. And it gave him confidence now. And he realized that God was with him now. And that this battle would not be decided by weapons. Swords don't make a difference, but God will make a difference and he will give David the victory. Now at this point, our story can be entitled, When David 
killed Goliath. But that's not really our focus this morning. Uh, The title of my message is not when David killed Goliath. Well, it's when David killed, scratched out, and replaced by when David became Goliath. Uh, And a lot of people don't realize that happened, but it did. And we're going to take a look at this. 1 Samuel chapter 21 is going to be our focus for this morning. And this is when David became Goliath. You know that even though David had this great success and he delivered Israel from the Philistines and from Goliath, things did not go well for David after this. You can read about it in 1 Samuel 18, 19, 20. Saul got jealous. He heard everybody praising David. David, Saul's killed his thousands, David's killed his ten thousands. And Saul got jealous. Uh, And he tried to kill David in a variety of ways. And he even threw a spear at him a couple times and missed. Uh, And David has committed himself to not harm Saul, even though by this time David's been anointed in private by Samuel as the next king. David knows the throne will be his, He's committed himself to let God take care of that in his own time. And he will not raise a hand against Saul. So Saul's throwing spears, and David's got his hands tied behind his back. And so I think he's feeling very vulnerable. Uh, And so he gets afraid. And David's best friend, Jonathan, who happens to be Saul's son, says, you know, you're right about my father. I didn't think you were at first, but you are right, and you need to leave. You need to leave town. And so David runs away. Uh, He scrambles out of town. He actually gets a little help from his wife, Michael, Saul's daughter. And he goes to a town called Nov. Now, I realize as you look at this, you might think it it should be pronounced Nob Nob or something like that. But in Hebrew, it's Nov. (laughs) Um, And uh, most people pronounce this priest's name Ahimelech. But in Hebrew, it doesn't doesn't sound right to me. You've got to bear with me on this. Uh, His name is Ahimelech. So can I call him Achimelech this morning and you'll know what that means? Although I don't want to say that too much because it's kind of hard on the throat and I'm having trouble with my throat this week. Uh, So I might slip back and forth between Achimelech and Ahimelech. Uh, Then David came to Nov, to Achimelech the priest. And Achimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Achimelech the priest, The king has commissioned me with a matter and has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you and with which I have commissioned you. And I have directed the young men to a certain place. David lies. David is running away. Saul did not send him on a mission. Saul's trying to kill him. And the priest is concerned uh, because Nov is located just a couple miles away from Gibeah, Saul's hometown. And it's likely that the news has spread down there and they realize, you know, Saul doesn't like David. You know, he threw a spear at him a couple times. Uh, And so he's a little nervous when he sees David by himself because he realizes Saul is in insane mode these days. And if I come across as David's ally, I could be in big trouble. And in fact, he is in big trouble. The sequel to this story, Saul wipes out the whole town, all the priests who live there. Uh, and so he's nervous about this. And David says, well, I, I was sent on, a, on a, a mission by the king. It was, it was an emergency kind of thing. And uh, my men are with me. They're out, they're out in the woods. There's no men with him at this point. 
Men arrive a little bit later at Adulam. They're not with him here at this point, as far as we can tell. Uh, so uh, Ahimelech is a little nervous. And then uh, let's read verses 3 through 6. Now therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread if only the young men have kept themselves from women. This is special bread that they would put before the Lord. And then on the Sabbath they would remove that bread, put new bread in there, and the priests would eat the older bread. And that's what Achimelech is saying. He says, I've got some of that sanctified bread. I'm a little hesitant to give it to you since you're not a priest, but I'm willing to do that as long as your men have uh, sanctified themselves uh, because this is some kind of military mission uh, and so they can't have had relations with their wives. Uh, And David answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have been kept from us, as previously when I set out, and the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey. How much more than today will their vessels be holy? David says, Hey, we're we're always uh, sanctified when we go on a mission, even more so today. So you can give me the bread. So the priest gave him consecrated bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. So the priest, even though he's a little bit hesitant, he agrees to give David (coughs) this bread. (coughs) Now, this is ominous, what happens in verse 7. Now one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. So just imagine, David is, knows Saul is after him. He's come down here to get some food from, and more, as we'll see, from the priest. And all of a sudden, David recognizes, oh no, look who's over there. That's Doeg the Edomite. I know exactly what he's going to do. He's going to go back to Saul. He's going to tell Saul where I am, that I'm down here. Oh, boy. So you can, you can just kind of feel David's fear beginning to rise. He's on the run to begin with. He sees this guy over here, Saul's right-hand man, and he's worried. And notice what he does in verse 8. Verses 8 and 9. This is one of the great letdowns of the Old Testament, and there are many. This is like the Israelites complaining after they crossed the Red Sea on dry land. Like, God, what have you done for me lately? Like in the last five minutes. Um, and this is a great letdown. When, when you think about what we just read, First Samuel 17, and now you listen to David. It's like it's not even the same person. And David said to Achimelech, Now is there not a spear or sword on hand? Now think about that. Remember what he told Goliath? The Lord doesn't save with spears or swords. That's not important. It's God's presence that makes a difference. For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's matter was urgent. Now, I'm sure the priest saw through this. Now, wait a minute here. The the king sent you on an urgent matter, and you left so quickly that you didn't bring your weapon with you? Really? That just doesn't seem to make sense. Uh, Then That's what fear does. It causes you to say some really stupid things sometimes. Then the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah. Notice how the priest is reminding David 
of what God did for him in the past. David's not thinking that way right now. The priest is reminding him, though, Behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. Last time we saw it, David had it in his tent, I think along with uh, Goliath's head. Uh, but uh, somehow it got down here with the priests. If you would uh, take it for yourself, take it. Okay, we got Goliath's sword back here. You know, that, I, we don't keep weapons around. This is not an armory. But we've got that one back here. Um, and uh, if, if you take it, for there is no other except it here. And notice what David says. There is none like it. Give it to me. Boy, his attitude sure has changed. When he saw Goliath holding it, he said, the Lord doesn't deliver by sword or spear. Now he sees Goliath's sword. He's desperate. Doeg is over here. And he knows Saul's after him. And he says, oh, it's the best sword in the world. There is none like it. Give it to me. He's now trusting in Goliath's sword. He takes Goliath's sword. Look at who is looking a lot like Goliath at this point. Um, this uh, This is not good. And it gets worse. Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. This is a Philistine king. This is Goliath's hometown. This is Goliath's hometown. So here he is, bebopping into Gath with Goliath's sword, Look who looks like Goliath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David? Now, notice, they know who David is. The king of the land? He's the the king in waiting. Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, We know what they sang after he killed Goliath. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. The Philistines know all this. They know the history. They know what God has done for David. David is not even thinking about that. He's fixated on Goliath's sword. And David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. David realizes at this point, these guys remember who I am. They know who I am. I'm in enemy territory. I wish I hadn't come here. (laughs) I think that's what's going on in his mind at this time. And that's what fear will do sometimes. It will cause you to just act insane. Uh, Just insane. Meet Joey. We have three dogs, and this is our latest addition. This is Joey. He's a rescue dog. This is the day of Joey's graduation from obedience school, which, that's dog ice cream in the back there that he didn't finish because I think he realized he didn't really deserve this ice cream. Um, Joey was socially promoted, shall we say. (laughs) He was one of two dogs in the class. Uh, It was a Sunday afternoon class. And uh, he got the award for most improved. Which is a real joke. (laughs) Because the other dog was really good from the beginning. So, most improved means, for you baseball fans, let's say we got a 150 hitter and the next year he hits 198, he's improved, but it's still pathetic. He hasn't even reached the Mendoza line. Uh, And so uh, Joey was most improved. He also got best stay. You know, that's where you... Yeah, they give these awards out. You know, the other dog got all the awards, but Joey got a couple. Most improved and best stay. You know, best stay, that's where you say to the dog, stay, stay, don't come. Well, I saw this. 
And he's just lazy. He was just lazy. He didn't want to come anyway. <laughs> even, if you'd, even if you said, Joey, come on, come on, come on. He wouldn't have come. <laughs> so, and it was really interesting because he got his diploma. Yeah. I mean, they really do it upright. He had a little hat on, and the teacher comes over afterward and kind of whispers to my wife and me and says, uh, Mrs. Chisholm, I think it would be a good idea if Joey retook the class. I know he has a... I mean, <laughs> when does anybody do that? You know, you go down the, the line at graduation and you say, oh, by the way, I think you need to repeat 12th grade. <laughs> we gave you a diploma today just to make everybody happy, but, uh, you know, you're, you're not there yet. You're not ready to move on. So Joey is repeating the class, and uh, he's doing a little bit better. But this is Joey. And I'm out walking Joey one day, and he doesn't look it, but he thinks he's fierce. And so when he sees big dogs, pit bulls, you name it, big dogs, he goes ballistic. And it's like he wants to fight them. And I just, I've got to hold him back. He's barking like crazy. So I'm thinking he's brave. Well, one day I'm giving him a walk, and around the corner comes a lady pushing a baby in a stroller. So I go, oh no, what's, what's he going to do here? He, I, his eyes, you could see the terror in his eyes. I don't know if he's had a past experience with a stroller or not, but his eyes got huge. And he starts backing up, and he pulled himself right out of his harness and his leash, and he went fast, right down the street. I go, good grief, Joey, come back! And he made a right turn. I said, he's going home. So I called my wife. I said, Joey is on his way home. <laughs> terrified. Absolutely terrified of a baby in a stroller. And so, I, you know, I couldn't help but think of David. You know, he's out there facing Goliath and he's got all the courage in the world. He remembers what God has done and he knows God is with him. And he says, swords and spears don't matter. You're going down, big guy. Because God is going to give me the victory. And now, he's running from Saul and everything has changed. He's like Joey. He's just, his fear has made him insane. He doesn't remember. He's not aware of God's presence. The priest remembers. The Philistines remember, but not David. So he's in a bad way here. And this is one of the most hilarious little episodes in all the Old Testament right here in verses 13 through 15. So he disguised his sanity before them. I think he's already kind of insane, uh, temporarily. Uh, and he acted insanely in their hands. Now, this is the great David. And he scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down his beard. So get the picture? He's act- I'm not going to get into this too much, but <laughs> he's scribbling on doors and spitting. And then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? What do I need with this guy? And this is really funny. Do I lack madmen that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? I got enough crazy, insane fools around. I don't need another one. I think he's talking about them. Uh, and so, God delivers David by his providence, uh, and David uh, goes back. Um, but here he was, arriving in Goliath's hometown with Goliath's favorite sword. Uh, who has become like Goliath? Well, when he faced off against Goliath, David remembered what God had done for him. 
God's track record made a difference for him as the buffalo herd was out there. But now, threatened by Saul, he fails to remember. Uh, But when we're facing a challenge, we need to do the smart thing. And we need to remember what God has done. We need to follow the example of David in 1 Samuel 17, not the example of David in 1 Samuel 21. And sometimes when I think back over my life, I feel a little embarrassed in this regard. Uh, I've always struggled with worry, uh, especially when it comes to money matters. Can anybody relate to this? (laughs) Um, Maybe it's uh, due in part to the fact that I grew up around people who had lived through the Great Depression of the 1930s when when so many men were out of work for extended periods of time uh, and a lot of people just weren't sure whether they were going to be able to pay the rent or buy the groceries. Uh, And it seemed that my father who had seen his own father lose his job and struggle through the Depression, uh, was always worried that he might lose his job. He was a banker. He was an officer in a bank. He always worried that he was going to lose his job and that our family was going to end up destitute and homeless. Like the Great Depression was going to be relived in our family. Uh, And when you grow up in that kind of environment, you become a worrier. Um, But when I look back at my life, I see how God has always provided. And it's been uncanny. You know, just before some expense comes through, for a while there it was like money would come along. One way or the other, I'd get an opportunity to write something or uh, speak, and the money would come through. And it got so crazy for a while, I just said to my wife, well, I got X number of dollars this week for this. You know we're going to have a car repair for this amount this week that we don't know about yet. (laughs) And it would happen. (laughs) It was like the Lord was providing as we went along. Uh, And the Lord has always uh, taken care of us. But despite God's constant provision, I worried. But that really started to change a few years ago when we really did face this buffalo herd with my daughter. Uh, And I'd like to uh, finish that story for you. It got worse before it got better. Um, uh, this this was such a traumatic experience for my daughter. She became a cutter. You know what a cutter is? (laughs) I'll bet you the uh, kids know what a cutter is. Um, My daughter's working with junior high kids right now, and every one of the girls is a cutter. And she began to cut herself. And she'd tell us this, uh, and I'd say, why do you do this? And she said, well, when I cut myself, it's physically painful, but it draws my attention and I forget about my emotional pain for a while. I go, oh. Um, and, and so she became a cutter and she began to do some things that we didn't approve of, that God wouldn't approve of. Uh, her lifestyle, uh, kind of, she kind of wandered from the, uh, the path. And so we prayed a lot. And I remember one Sunday morning I was, uh, I was praying as I was walking and I said, Lord, Stephanie needs wisdom uh, and the kind of biblical wisdom. She needs, she needs to know what's right and wrong. She needs to then do what's right. And later that afternoon she called me and she said, Dad, she said, I decided to go to a different church with one of my friends today, a church in Austin. And she said the, the preacher was preaching on James, um, which is kind of like her favorite book, 
in fact, she named her dog James because she likes the book of James in the Bible. And she says, the preacher was talking about how we need wisdom. She says, I need wisdom. I go, oh, <laughs> I just prayed for that a couple of hours ago. <laughs> and uh, you went to a different church and you heard this message and you, you need wisdom. And, and I began to realize, you know, when you pray specifically about things, God sometimes answers those prayers. And, and so uh, he, he's brought her out of that, praise God. She hasn't cut in over two years. She met a wonderful young man, and she got married. And uh, this is Stephanie right here in the middle. She got married in March. This is me. I'm the old guy. That's my wife. Uh, that's my daughter. That's my son, Doug, and uh, his wife, Jenny. And so, as you can see, Stephanie is a, a happy bride there. That's a dress out of a Ginger Rogers movie, by the way. And so she's happily married, and you know what she does now? She works for a ministry at her church called Life Hurts, God Heals. And God is redeeming all the stuff that she did in her past. And she is able to go in and talk to these girls, and they're, some of these young girls are just going through some horrible things, abusive fathers, uh, they're cutting, they're, they're, just, they're addicted to things, and so she is able to speak to them in a way that resonates because she's been through some of that. And the Lord is redeeming her past. And so now every day when I pray, and I think we should all do this, I talk to God about what He has done in the past. I go back through all that. I go, Lord, thank You for the ways that You've always provided for me, even when I was like David on the run. You know, thank you. Uh, you. You have a history in our family. Thank You for saving my father when he was in his 30s. It's just completely altered the history of our family. Uh, thank You for uh, what You've done for Stephanie. And, and I, I thank the Lord for the people who were involved, because it didn't happen alone. There were some... Some good people. A middle-aged lady in our church uh, became Stephanie's mentor, a very godly woman. Uh, a, a fellow who works for Young Life, uh, he helped Stephanie. Uh, counselors, good counseling helped. I thank the Lord for all of that. So every day, I try to remind myself of God's track record in the experience of our family. And it really does help when things come up. I'm finding out that when things come up that I used to just oh, get all tense about, now I go to the history. I go, no, no, God has done it in the past. Like, just like David said, hey, I killed the lion and the bear, I can take this guy out. But it's more than just the past. We also have to be conscious of God in the present. God's presence right here, right now. Remember what David said on the battlefield. He reminded Saul of what God had done, but he also made it pretty clear that he knew God was with him right now. It's the Lord that's going to give the victory. And sometimes someone's presence makes all the difference in the world. And as we close this morning, one more story. Uh, when my son was just a little guy, no, four or five years old, we used to do something that I would not recommend now in retrospect. We used to ghost bust Okay, so there, we, there were these imaginary ghosts in the back, and we had lightsabers and all the kind of stuff that was in back in the uh, mid-80s when he was at this age. And sometimes in the evening, we'd go into the back bedroom, our bedroom, and it would be dark, 
and, and our bedroom had this area where, where the bathroom was back behind, and so that's where the ghosts would come from. They would come out of that back area. And we would hide behind the bed, and we would you know, go out and fight them with lightsabers and shoot our guns or whatever at them, and we were ghost-busting. And my son loved to do this. He loved to kill ghosts with his father. Well, I remember one night, uh, time to get him to bed, and sometimes we would let him fall asleep in our bed. That's not a good idea either. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so I, would t- I took him in there and, and lied down beside him, and we're going to go to bed. We pray, and then you know, we're ready to go to bed. And then once he falls asleep, I'm going to transfer him to his bed. Uh, and so this one night, he just can't get to sleep. He goes, Daddy, he says, I'm afraid the ghosts are going to get me. And I thought this was a stall tactic, but it wasn't. I didn't realize in a little boy's mind those ghosts were real. So, being a professor type, I say to myself, I've got to convince him that these ghosts aren't real. And so we go into a discussion of the metaphysics of ghosts and how that <laughs> that's all pretend. They're just pretend. We're pretending that those are ghosts. They're not real. But he wasn't convinced. No. He just kept saying, I'm just afraid the ghosts are going to get me. And, and so, you know, it got a little louder. And, and my wife comes in and she goes, what is going on in here? He needs to get to sleep. What, 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 what's the problem here? I go, well, he's convinced that these ghosts are real. And I'm trying to convince him that they're not real. But he just he won't listen to me. She goes, Get up, leave. <laughs> she says, let me take over. But I decided to stay at the door and listen. Okay. And here's what she did. She got into the bed with him, and he says, Mommy, I am, I'm just afraid of these ghosts. I'm afraid they're going to get me. And she says, tell you what. She says, here, come up close to me. And she wrapped her arms around him, and she says, you just, you just lay here in my arms, and I'm going to hold you tight, and the ghosts won't be able to hurt you. And he was asleep in ten seconds. <laughs> See, uh, all the logic, <laughs> that wasn't going to get it done. Sometimes you have to feel the presence of someone. And my son felt his mother's arms around him, and he knew he was safe, because his mom was there. And that made all the difference in the world. And it did for David when he was out on the battlefield. And so, in conclusion, when you're facing those charging buffalo herds, it might be some traumatic event that comes your way. And what I've learned is if you haven't had one of those, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you will at some point. At some point, something like that's going to come down the road at you. And it can make or break you. It, can devast- it devastates some people. They just lose it and they're never the same. Uh, At the same time, it might be something that's more ongoing. And something might be a buffalo herd for you, a charging buffalo herd that wouldn't be for someone else. But just remember, when we face those challenges in life, and God isn't going to take them away. It's part of the fallen world, the trouble that we face. Jesus said every day has enough trouble of its own. Don't worry about tomorrow. Uh, But when when, when we face that kind of thing, It really helps if you remember what God has done for you. Every day, pray about that. Thank Him for what He's done. And also remember that He's with with us. You know, for those of us who believe in Christ, we have the indwelling Spirit. He's with us. 
And he wants to help us and give us that supernatural strength so we can overcome these things to his glory. Uh, And he loves it when we tell others what he has done for us, as I have done with you this morning. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you want to have a relationship with us and you've established that relationship through the Lord Jesus Christ who said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through him. And we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and that by your grace, through simple faith, we can have eternal life and the gift of your Spirit. And we thank you for all the things you've done in our experience. All that you've done in the life of the church since it was started way back when. And in our individual churches and in our lives. Help us to remember all of this when trouble comes. Every day help us to remember and be thankful people. And we thank you that we can be certain of your presence. That you promised your church that you would be with us to the end of the age. And we thank you for that. And help us to draw on your strength in times of trouble and not to panic before the enemy. And it's in Christ's name that we ask these things.